Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge podcast. On this episode, Misha Smith, a sixth grade teacher at Boise's Hawthorne Elementary, tells us about a science teacher's professional development dream, going on an expedition to Patagonia, where she saw elephant seals and Andean condors and explored glaciers and national parks. Everything she learned, she's bringing right back to the classroom to benefit Idaho students. She got to go on the trip after being selected as a 2023 Grosvenor Teacher Fellow through National Geographic and Lindblad Expeditions. Stay tuned to hear more about her once-in-a-lifetime trip. So thanks for coming on the show today, Misha. I'm excited to have you back on to talk about your trip. So can you tell us all about it? She went down to Patagonia. So where exactly did you travel? What did you see? What did you learn? What kinds of people did you meet? I want to know all about it. (laughs) Okay, so uh, I traveled to um, Patagonia, but the southern tip of South America. So the part of Patagonia that's called uh, Tierra del Fuego, which is mostly island um, owned by uh, Chile and Argentina. So I traveled with Lindblad Expeditions and um, National Geographic. That was part of the program. Um, So we started off in Ushuaia, Argentina. That's where we uh, got on the ship. And then uh, we traveled all around. We went out to an island that's called Staten Island. That's really um, kind of a remote place in the world where people don't go regularly unless they're required to have um, conservationists with them. when we left um, Ushuaia, we had to have conservationists with us on board to go to the island. Um, When we left that day, there was a really big storm. In fact, our ship was delayed by a few hours coming into port. So um, we were only able to go to one part of the island. We were supposed to go to a different part also, Um, but we were still able to uh, hike up to the lighthouse at the end of the world, which is what it's called. So it's the reconstruction of the lighthouse that was that inspired um, Jules Verne to write his book that's called The Lighthouse at the End of the World. So that was pretty cool. It was a former military base and then they had attempted to do a prison on that island and it was just so like windy and wind torn that they were just never able to settle on the island. So it's just been over all these past decades been just a wildlife refuge. Mm-hmm. So that was really neat. And then We went into safer waters in the fjords and canals through like the Beagle Canal. We traveled through the Magellan Strait um, and just spent, I think it was 10 days just exploring and checking out glaciers and wildlife. And um, everywhere we went, there were no, there was no people. So we left civilization when we departed from Ushuaia and then we came back into civilization when we disembarked the ship in Porto Natalis, Chile, after 10 days. So other than the people on our ship and some fishermen, we didn't encounter any any other humans the entire time, which was pretty wow. spectacular. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And how many people were on the ship with you? So there were four of us teachers that were part of the fellowship program. Um, that were on board. And then there was um, many naturalists and there was like an undersea specialist. There was a self-proclaimed bird nerd naturalist and he was kind of the bird expert. There was the naturalist who was um, the plant and 
fungus expert. So we just had all of these um, amazing people teaching us every single day um, about everything in this area. And then we had, um, there were guests on the ship. So the paying guests of people who pay to go on these adventure, it's like eco-tourism, right? Adventure tourism. Um, so there was about, I think, 80 people that were paying customers that were on the ship. And then, of course, there was just the staff, like the mm-hmm. amazing cooks and the stewards and the housekeeping, um, all of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, so from all of your travels, what stood out to you the most from the trip? What was like the most interesting or surprising or exciting part? Um, I would say that the most interesting um, was that, so we saw everywhere, not everywhere we went, but in many places that we went, we saw where uh, beavers have been destroying the ecosystem there, which is interesting because the North American beaver is actually, you know, like an ecosystem engineer. And in North America, they're supposed to be here and people actually like, um, you know, the ecosystem, they help the ecosystem. They help all of the plants and the animals in North America. The problem is is the Argentinian government brought, um, I think it was 30 beavers in the 1950s in the hopes of uh, starting a fur trade, which is kind of like an economic boost to the area. Because there's not a whole lot you can do in this area. It's fishing, there's some ranching, and that's about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're hoping to bring in another economic activity for all the people who have settled into that area, and it didn't work out. And the beavers just took over. There's no predator and because there's no people, it's such a remote, remote part of the world, they just took over. Now there's hundreds of thousands of beavers. And the, um, the plants and the animals that live there have not had an opportunity to um, become accommodated to this new ecosystem that these beavers are creating. So it's this huge problem. It's this kind of like emergency situation that's very, it's costing the Argentinian and Chilean governments millions of dollars a year to try to remove these beavers. The only way you can get to these places is by ship. So it's not like you can like drive or fly into these places. You can't just like hire a bunch of hunters to go out and trap them. So that was really interesting to me. One of the most interesting things. Um, I would say the most surprising was the amount of uh, plastic garbage that we saw in some of the areas. And again, this is a place where humans don't live. And there was massive amounts of trash. We spent um, a good hour, all of us on the ship, um, picking up trash in one area of a national park that's in that in Chile. And um, we could have spent weeks there trying to pick it up. And it was mostly single-use plastic, like plastic grocery bags um, that came across from Asia. So the wind in this area of the world is pretty serious. They call it the the roaring forties. And it comes from, um, you know, like the wind just crosses the ocean and there's no land for it to run into because there's no land in between. Um, It's just like the countries in Asia all the way to South America. So it just builds and builds and gets faster and faster and more fierce. And it brings with it in the ocean currents and across the wind, just all this plastic from areas of Asia that do not have um, uh, the proper infrastructure to be able to take care of the garbage. So that was very surprising and sad to see. Um, What was the name of that national park? uh, Kirin Pika 
I'll have to give you the spelling. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but Karen okay. Kika okay. National Public. It's really, it was really a beautiful place. That's actually where we were able to observe um, a colony of elephant seals for quite some time. We are able to get pretty close, obviously a safe distance, but pretty close and observe them and film them and take photos. And they're very entertaining to watch and listen to. They make all kinds of funny sounds. So um, that was probably a highlight for me. It's just kind of hanging out so closely with wildlife. Um, I would say the most exciting thing was just like every day was a new adventure. There was, you know, I would open up the porthole in my room and look out and there would be a glacier just like <laughs> right out my window and be like, oh, and we're going to go to that glacier today. And we would hop in our zodiacs and they would zoom us over to the glacier and we'd be able to get out and hike around and explore or, um, one time that was really a highlight for me was we got to um, see kayak to a glacier and it was kind of cool to see these kayaks were made by the air company which is manufactured in um, Meridian, Idaho, space oh, out yeah. Meridian. Uh -huh. So all the kayaks that we were on had stamped Meridian, Idaho on them. So that's oh, what a small world, huh? Connection to home. Yeah, mm -hmm. we got to the end of the world to use this kayak. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like a great experience um, and a lot of lessons you could possibly pass down to students. So when did you get home from the trip? And since then, how have you started sharing the experience with them? And how do you plan to bring it into your curriculum in the future? Right. So I got back right before, like the week before Thanksgiving break. So I, I spent a lot of time that week just sharing my experiences with my students when I was actually on the expedition, we had satellite internet and it was pretty good most of the time, which was also very surprising being out in the middle of nowhere. In fact, we encountered some fishermen that were a good two days away from any civilization and they were living out there on their tiny little fishing boat. They were crab fishermen. They were fishing for king crab and they um, live on their boat for three months and another boat will come in once a week and bring them provisions and take the crabs out. But they just live out there and we asked them um, through translation, of course, one of our naturalists was from Chile. So he spoke with them and he asked like, what do you guys do? You're out here mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere in this really harsh climate for three months. What do you do? And they said, oh, well, we have the internet. We watch Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was nice because I was able to take like, you know, I was a student this whole time on the trip. So every night we have our recap of it thing we had learned from the naturalist and would have on days that we were traveling. So we weren't, there were some travel days when we were out to sea. Um, we would have these uh, presentations from the different naturalists. So we were just constantly learning. I had my little pad with me. I was taking notes all the time. And I was able to put together blog posts for my students to read that I was sending back to my, my student teacher, who was my substitute. Um, the kids were able to follow along by reading the blog posts while I was there. And then also I was posting on my classroom Instagram, um, that kind of stuff. So they were kind of getting a little sample of it while I was there. But then when I came back, I was able to just share with them like day by day, all the pictures and videos and just talk to them. So I just set aside a little bit of time every day to just kind of go through it and they could ask me questions. So they got like the full meal deal, of course, because they're my students. But 
Um, before I left on expedition, I had gone into each classroom in the building and just did a little mini presentation and I gathered an inquiry question from each class. Like, what do you want me to really focus on while I'm on this expedition? What do you want me to find? So each class had a different question. Um, so I put that together in, that's what I spent Thanksgiving break doing, put it together into a slideshow. And then I last week went and presented in every class um, and just shared with them the pictures and the videos and answered their questions. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty cool. And then today, today was highlight. It was so fun. Um, I was able to work out with the junior high that, that my student from last year go to. And um, they have an advisory period at the end of the day. So I was able to sneak over there and go. They pulled just those kids that were in my class last year out of their advisory period so I could do a presentation for them as well, which was really exciting because they didn't know that was happening. It was kind of a surprise to them. They just got <laughs> this little slip from the counselor that said that they had to meet at the auditorium. Mm -hmm. And then when they saw me, they were just so excited because <laughs> they were thinking like, oh man, it's not fair. Like we were part of that whole process of your application, but then we didn't get mm -hmm. to experience it like your students did. And then I was like, surprise, I'm here. Nice. So that was, that was really fun. It was kind of like getting the band back together again too. Mm -hmm. Like a little family reunion. What were some of the questions that students had for you when you were doing your presentations? Um, it's funny, it, it ranged from, um, a lot of them were like, did you pet a penguin? <laughs> or, you know, like those kinds of questions. <laughs> so we had to have, you know, especially the younger kids, you have to have this conversation. These are wild animals. I know they look accessible because I was so close to them, but you can't just go touch them. You have to respect that this is wildlife. Um, it was interesting because these animals don't see humans very often. They were not afraid of us at all. Um, so that was really interesting. And there's just, um, they just had so many questions about like, um, a lot of them really were very curious about the glaciers. Um, and so that was, that was really fun to be able to talk to them and show them like, here's pictures of glaciers. Here's a video of a glacier calving, you know, breaking apart. Here's a video of me tasting an iceberg, like pulling it out of the ocean and taking a bite out of it. And what did it taste like? And those <laughs> kinds of questions. So yeah, they were just very curious depending on the age group, you know, the complexity of the questions. Mm -hmm. But it seems like they were really excited to hear about it. And did it seem like some of them followed along with you on Instagram or on your blog while you were gone? Um, yeah, so I know for sure, like my kids because of the blog, but some of them also, their families follow our classroom Instagram page. So I know that they were following along. And then I was also sending some, you know, my students before we left, they started a writing assignment where they were studying a different um, animal. Each student was studying a different animal from Patagonia. So they were working on that while I was gone. And if I encountered their particular animal, I would send that picture to my student teacher and say, you know, show this to Jack. I saw a king penguin today, or I mm -hmm. saw magical penguins today. Show this to Bronson. And so they all, um, you know, if I saw their animal, I was able to kind of make that little connection too. And she was sending me videos of them. Like we, we miss you, Mrs. Smith. So it was fun to be able to kind of stay connected a little bit that way. Um, but yeah, they were definitely following along. I don't know if all of the kids in the other classes were following along or not, but they definitely felt connected. Um, before I left, I had a big flag made that has the Hawthorne logo on it. 
and I had all of the students in the school sign the flag. And so when I was there, I took pictures with the flag at several different locations. Like here's the Hawthorne flag in front of a glacier and here's the Hawthorne flag at the end of the road, at the end of the world, like the southernmost road in the world. Like there's no more roads from this point. Um, <laughs> so when I came back and I was able to show them that flag, they were really excited to see those pictures. Like they kind of felt connected, like they, a little part of them got to go on the journey too. Mm -hmm. So, well, before I get to my next question, I am curious about the wildlife you saw. You mentioned um, penguins and what was the other thing? Uh, elephant seals. Elephant seals, yeah. Yeah, so many birds. So a lot of the wildlife, the plants and wildlife down there are species that are just endemic to that area. So they're only found in that part of the world, which is, so it makes it a pretty delicate ecosystem. Um, there's just this kind of like special balance there. Um, I would say like elephant seals was probably my favorite because they were just very entertaining to watch. We didn't see as many penguins as I had hoped, partially because of that big storm that kind of diverted mm -hmm. our, we were supposed to sail to Cape Horn and because of the big storm, we were not able to go there. And that's where a lot of the penguin colonies are. Um, there's also been an outbreak and spread of the avian flu in that part of the world. And so we, um, the naturalists were saying that it seemed like the, the numbers of wildlife were down and we had to be very cautious when we were leaving. Anytime we left the ship and anytime we came back, we had, they had a whole like station where we had to scrub all of our gear and um, antibacterial um, wash and everything for us. Because, and they would send out a, a scout before we could even land at a site. They would send out a scout to make sure that there was no signs of any fatalities there that may lead to um, there being avian flu in that area, because if they did see that, we would not be able to land to that spot. So, mm -hmm. uh, so that was interesting. But yeah, we saw Magellanic penguins, king penguins, Andean condors. That was pretty cool to be able to see Andean condors there, the largest wingspan, just like incredible. Um, just so many different birds, especially. I, I wasn't really a bird person, <laughs> but now I am. Like mm -hmm. the, some of the other teachers and I were just joking about how we're like legit birders now. So that, I mean, that really kind of was different for me because I never really, I guess I never really paid much attention to birds. And I was kind of collecting this list of birds as I was going. What were some of the other species you saw? Oh goodness. Of I birds. Whole, like, hang on one second. I'm going to grab it so I can look at them. In. So I have this whole brochure um that i bought on the that i bought on the ship that had i was using it kind of like a checklist so i was going through and finding oh there was the flightless steamer duck which was very entertaining to watch because um they look like a regular duck but they don't fly so when we would come upon them in the um, zodiacs they would use their wings to push themselves out of out of the water to just kind of like almost like skip across the the top of the water to get away from us, but they never could take hmm. flight. Interesting. I thought that was a really interesting adaptation, like a, mm -hmm. a duck that cannot mm -hmm. fly. Um, one of the, I know that there are, I was hoping to see a peregrine falcon because there are like South American peregrine falcons that are different from the North America peregrine falcons. And we never did see one, although we do have a South American peregrine falcon at the Birds of Prey 
His name is Schmidt, so you can go visit him if you ever want to go there. Um, the Caracaras, there was a couple of those. Those are those are like a bird of prey that were really colorful. Um, the kelp goose are very cute, so they're just this tiny little white goose. I thought they were really cute. The black neck swans were pretty spectacular. Um, there were several several different kind of cormorants. Um, and they kind of looked like penguins from far away. So I was getting all excited thinking <laughs> I was seeing penguins and then they were cormorants because they're black and white, just like a penguin. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a few. Oh, we did see, and I thought this was crazy. We saw a hummingbird. So there's one species of hummingbird that lives down there, which is crazy because it's so cold. And um, we did manage to spot one um, kind of far away. So it was like through binoculars. So there's no way you could take a picture of it, but that was pretty fun. What kind of hummingbird was it? You know, um, it was the, I wrote it down, the green-backed fire-crowned hummingbird. That is See? just really surprising because they feed off flowers, right? And I just can't imagine a lot of plant life down there, but. Yeah, it was really, it's interesting. There's a lot of what you would call like a extremophiles in this part of the world where, um, you know, like there's an insect. I didn't see an example of it, but. We learned about it in one of the that lives on the glaciers. It's a it's a variety of stonefly, which we have stonefly here in Idaho, and it's they call it the Patagonia ice dragon, which I think is the coolest name for an insect. And um, they actually live on glaciers, and scientists are studying trying to figure out how can this insect live on glaciers because there's not a lot of insects. There's like very few. Um, like lizards and amphibians and those kinds of creatures because it's so cold there. Um, But the Patagonia ice dragon um, has something in its blood that keeps it from freezing. And scientists have even put it in boiling water and it has survived being boiled too. Wow. So whatever whatever they have. Some incredible adaptability. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's just really interesting. And I'm a huge plant lover. So just seeing all of the different plants that were there that were interesting. I did get to taste, they have a local legend that if you taste the Calafate berry, um, then you are destined to come back to Patagonia. Hmm. And the berries were not in season. I did see the bushes everywhere. It was like one of the major bushes that they have there. Um, But they did have Calafate berry ice cream that I was able to taste. And it tasted just like huckleberries. So that was kind of like, almost like a little taste of home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I love all the connections back to to Idaho or to the area that you were finding. Um, And I was curious about the other teachers on the trip. Where were they from and and what grade levels and subjects did they teach? Yeah, so we had a teacher who teaches fourth grade in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and she brought with her a 360 degree camera, which was which was pretty cool. It was tricky because it was so windy. It would get knocked down all of the time, all time, but she was able to get some good photos and she just recently shared them with me and I was able to share them with my students. Um, and they're pretty incredible because you can, you can look up and you can look down and turn all around. You can use them with a VR, like VR headset, um, or just like on, on the computer on a web-based program where you can just use your mouse to turn around. So that, that's a pretty immersive experience being able to just, the kids were looking at it today and they were just mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, look, there's the glacier. Or one of the kids had zoomed in to a plant that was like growing on the side of a tree and was asking me like, what plant is that? And I was like, that's actually a fungus. And I was able to tell them all about it. Mm-hmm. 
That was pretty cool. So she, yeah, so she teaches fourth grade and then we had a high school Spanish teacher and he was from West Philadelphia. He was very handy to have on the trip because he spoke Spanish fluently. In mm -hmm. fact, he had done a study abroad program in Argentina. So he knew mm -hmm. some of the cultural stuff too. So that was really fun having him. And then the other teacher um, was from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan in Canada. And she teaches an outdoor um, program with kindergartners. Cool. Yeah. So everybody was very, like, we had these different backgrounds, different, and it was so fun to be able to just bounce ideas off of each other mm -hmm. through the program. And then we've already, like, decided we want to be travel buddies and do adventures with each other in the future, too. So we were like, we're going to plan on going to Banff next year, meeting in go. Canada, <laughs> go exploring together. So it sounds like it was, um, like, an in-depth PLC and PD all wrapped into one. Yeah, absolutely. And adventure, too. What was it like for you to shift from being a teacher to being a student and a student of not teachers per se, but professionals in their field? Um, I don't think it was a very big jump to go from teacher to student. I feel like I'm already a student all the time. I'm learning from my students. I'm learning for my students to enrich my curriculum. So I didn't think that was a big jump. I also obviously got into education because I love to learn and I'm just a curious person in general. So it was not a big deal for me to be, I mean, carrying around a notepad and taking notes every, I mean, I even went and bought one of those waterproof notepads with the special pens in case it was raining and I still needed to take notes. So yeah, that was not a big jump to me. I would say the biggest jump would be when I came back <laughs> to civilization and coming back to my teaching role and just kind of like from being immersed in the wildlife and exploring and having to kind of just switch back into classroom mode. That was that little, I mean, it was just kind of very um, disorienting. Actually just kind of being home in general was very disorienting because we were there for so long. I kind of feel like I just really became comfortable with that environment. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was interesting that you came across these real world kind of science problems on your trip, like the avian flu, the pollution, the introduction of this invasive species and its impact. Mm -hmm. um, so climate change with the glaciers, the yeah. glaciers are melting, 9% of the glaciers there are melting mm -hmm. and it's, um, they're melting at a rate of one and a half meters per year. So it's a pretty significant melting rate and I know that um, some of the penguins are dying off too because they have adapted to like their species is adapted to hatch the eggs hatch on ice there's no ice for the eggs to hatch on and they're not hatching so that's causing a major problem too more so in Antarctica but it's still a big problem in that area as well. Mm -hmm. And as you share these stories of problems with your students does it inspire you to want to do like problem solution type lessons. I think you've already done that kind of before, right? Um, so how how will you bring like problems into your curriculum and what other ideas do you have for bringing this experience into like the rest of this year and how you'll teach students? Right, so we do, my class, we do a G inquiry project every year and the kids develop a question um, that's rooted in a 
problem that's found in Idaho's ecosystems. So um, this year, normally we pick our question earlier in the year, but I, I wanted to wait till after I had this experience to see if, if they were inspired by anything that I encountered, and they actually were. Um, so they actually chose their question last week, and um, they've decided that they want to study um, invasive species in Idaho. They were really interested and intrigued by the idea of the North American beaver, which is supposed to be this positive piece to the ecosystem, at least it is in Idaho. Um, and then the drastic comparison of you take this helpful animal and you put it in a different environment and suddenly he turns into the bad guy. And that was fascinating to them. And so that in addition to, you know, the news about the quagai mussel, um, being found in the Snake River and what's being done about that. And then we've also been working on pulling invasive weeds in our native garden. And we adopted a plot of land near the river and we're planting native plants there. So I think all of that kind of tied together and they wanna know more about invasive species in Idaho, what's being done about it, what are the different species, what can we do? Like what kind of project can we come up with? Is it just an education campaign? Is it something else that we can do as a class? Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. So mm -hmm. yeah, so they developed their question on um, what are the invasive species in Idaho? What problems are they causing and what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. That's great. And that's gonna be a year long project. So they're, they're really excited to get started. Like tomorrow we're gonna start right away with reading the news stories about the quagai mussels and just learning about that situation mm -hmm. what's being done about it. And then I've already reached out some to some local um, government agencies that deal with the invasive species, see if we can get some guest presentations and just kind of mm -hmm. go from there. So we'll see what happens. I'm excited to watch the project develop. Mm -hmm. So why do you think it's important for teachers and even student or students and even teachers, I should say, to learn outside of the classroom from time to time and get out into the real world and see how their learning applies, you know, outside the walls of a school. Right. I think for teachers, it's like the best professional development is something that's outside of your own school or your own district. I mean, there's a lot of really high quality professional development that takes place within the walls of your school, within the school district, obviously, and that's pointed specifically to the curriculum and the, the school that you're in. But it's really um, amazing to get outside of the state and encounter other teachers from from different experiences, different places in the world. Um, and then just, just learning about different places in the world just kind of gives you a broader perspective of education of these particular things that you're studying like climate change or ecosystems and just kind of just adding a richness to um, what you're learning and what you're teaching the students. So just kind of giving you that broader background of, of information, I mean, I, there's not always funding for teachers to be able to do professional development opportunities outside of the school district, but anytime there is opportunities, I you know encourage teachers to do that, even if it's just going to another state to a conference, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But these, these, I mean, I, this has opened up a whole new world to these. Um, there are many different other programs out there for teachers where they can do professional development. Um, I know that um, there's a Teachers at Sea program that I've heard about now that's through um, 
NOAA. So that's something that I'm interested in investigating later on, you know, down the road, obviously, I'm not going to be jumping on another one right away. Mm -hmm. And then I know there's a a program called Funds for Teachers, where teachers can create their own professional development travel. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of like a grant program you apply for. Um, The NEA has some teacher traveling programs. There's just, I mean, I I don't know that I can think of all of them, but I think it's just really, um, it's a really cool way to get your professional development outside of your state, outside of your school district. And then for students, it's just like any kind of knowledge that you can get outside of the classroom is just as important um, than what you're learning in the classroom. Again, it just kind of gives you a more rounded opportunity for learning. And what we're really trying to do is create these lifelong learners. So if they can have these um, experiences outside of the classroom and something, maybe, maybe they're not so great in the whole typical school environment, but you get them outside the classroom and they're really into a particular, you know, like, I have students who are just like really fascinated with birds now because we've been working with the fish and game on the bird by bird program. And now they're really fascinated by birds and maybe they're not so great with the reading and the writing. And because they have something that they're really interested in now, you can start bringing in these topics that interest them. And then now they don't mind so much to do the reading and writing because it's a topic that really interests them. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just finding that, um, getting them out and finding what interests them Mm-hmm. really important and then you can reach them um, kind of where they are versus mm-hmm. just trying to make them fit the mold of a typical student mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um well I think that covers it is there anything else that you wanted to add or share with us about your trip um, not that I can think of right now, but people are welcome to um, if they're on Instagram if they want to check out I have pictures and and reels and everything that are on Instagram on um, Smith Smarties Hawthorne, or I can give you my email address and they can reach out to me if they have questions about the program. Awesome. Yeah. We just share. And they have applications that they accept once a year for that program. Yeah, Actually the Grosner teacher fellowship program, which is, this is through Limblad expeditions and national geographic. The applications are open right now. And um, they are due in mid-January. Mm-hmm. I don't know remember the exact date. But yeah, it's available right now. So if they want to go check it out and apply, they're always looking for Idaho teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, Idaho is a very underrepresented state when it comes to this program. So they're always very excited when Idaho teachers apply. So mm-hmm. I think it kind of gives you a little edge up amongst one of the, some of the other states where there's higher populations and more people applying from that state. Mm -hmm. Good to know. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time and telling us about your trip and congratulations again on being selected for that. Thank you for listening to the Teacher's Lounge podcast and a special shout out to any of Ms. Smith's sixth grade students, if any of you are listening. And just so you listeners know, that was the second time Misha's been a guest. In an earlier episode, she talks about applying for the fellowship and tells us more about special projects and field trips in her classroom. So go back and listen to that if you're interested. And don't forget to go to idahoednews.org for all the latest. See you next time.